0: Hello, and welcome back to the History Connection podcast. I'm Michael Musangu, and today we're going to be discussing a little more about Napoleon. This is our final installment in the Napoleon series, and our next episode will be the next topic of the month. We're going to be discussing a little bit about really the two things that led to Napoleon's demise. We'll also be discussing some of the different treaties and different things that really led to how Napoleon thought he was so invincible, and eventually into what led into his demise. The two major things I believe led into his demise was firstly, the occupation of Madrid by the French troops. Secondly, it will be the War of 1812, uh, or not really the War of 1812, but the invasion of Russia in 1812. If I said the War of 1812, that would have been America, totally different thing. <laughs> but anyways, Napoleon went through all these things. And we'll also be discussing some of the treaties that he made with these countries. They will also be these treaties. I will include them in the show notes. I will also include some of the maps so we can of the battles that Napoleon fought so that we can trace his steps so you can have a better understanding of the some of the things that made people believe that Napoleon was really a genius on the battlefield. So if you would like to take some time and maybe grab a notepad or, or some pen and paper so you can write a, a couple notes. Um, that would be awesome. And if not, hey, that's okay, too. There's always a rewind button on this as well. All right, let's get started. So um, a little recap, I guess I'll do, is we left off where Napoleon crowned himself emperor, right? He crowned himself emperor. And a few months later, he then crowns himself king of Northern Italy. And he's crowned king on the 26th of May, 1805. Now, why is this important? Because when Napoleon crowns himself emperor, if we remember. Napoleon, found himself emperor at the end of 1805, and what is and what and the significance of this is that Napoleon went and said, "Hey Pope, I would like you to crown me king, in the eyes of the French and of other people of other kingdoms that were Catholic following or Pope following, I should say." This meant that it was legitimate, because in order to be a legitimate ruler, you needed to have God to back you up. And Napoleon literally played this card and went to the Pope, and he got crowned emperor. Now, when this happened, he the, the Pope actually expected for him to give him some of his land back. And basically, Napoleon said, nope, I actually want uh, northern Italy uh, to be mine. And he basically crowned himself emperor uh uh, king, I should say, of Northern Italy. And that happened in 1805. So at this point, because of this, the Third Coalition starts to form because they realize that Napoleon is starting to become a, really ma- a real major threat. He literally starts to get to a point where it got to a point where they thought invasion was imminent. Uh, essentially, the Third Coalition forms with Austria, Russia, and the UK. And as we know from history, the UK has always been in the back burner of France. You know, France and the UK have always been bickering literally since the 1680s. <laughs> so literally, I'm not, there's no surprise, we should say, that literally the UK is part of this. What What is m- most interesting is that Austria comes back for another go at Napoleon. They just never know when to quit. And Russia now starts to take um, time to join the game. So... Basically, Napoleon spends the summer of 1805 forming his Armée d'Angleterre, which was designed to invade the Kingdom of Great Britain. And in English, Armée d'Angleterre literally means the Army of England. And literally everyone thinking that invasion was imminent thought that he was literally going to invade Great Britain. But in fact, he actually goes, nope, I'm going to invade the Rhine. So he turns his troop east and goes towards the Rhine and literally marches his troops in that area the austrians declare war on september 8 1805 and literally uh they the austrians invade bavaria and start to attack france napoleon at this point literally uh starts to fight france and it's it's quite a deep battle and they're fighting and fighting but it finally gets to a major culmination one of the major battles that napoleon had an amazing victory was the battle of ulm And why this made him very victorious is because he surprised the Austrians. Again, one of the things we discussed that made Napoleon really epic at fighting is that he had the element of surprise, he was super light on his feet, and he also was just simply a battle genius. He knew how to fight on the field. All the time in school and all that studying on all these battle tactics, and I guess a bit of luck also led into what made him so victorious on the field. And literally, while all this is happening, uh, on at the Battle of Trafalgar in the middle of the ocean, Horatio Nelson, Admiral Horatio Nelson, if we remember him from last episode, he was the uh, British admiral who was basically causing Napoleon a bunch of pain when he was in Egypt. Now he's causing him a bunch of pain at the Battle of Trafalgar. Now, as we know, Horatio Nelson is literally holding one of or I should not say holding he's literally commanding one of the largest military uh or I should not say militaries navies in the world and that is the british navy the english navy is is so large so powerful they rule the seas and they have in that time period for quite some time the french also had uh, some pretty good times as rulers of the na- of the seas but England really is having their time as rulers of the sea right now. And thus, Horatio Nelson once again defeats the French Navy at the Battle of Trafalgar, meaning the British will reign supreme over the seas. And that means the French can never really invade the British by sea. So that's literally a hard pill for Napoleon to swallow. You see, one of the things that we must understand here is that Napoleon was not really strong with the sea. He he was never trained to be a sailor. Uh, on the on ships he his his direction actually that he tried to give to the admirals that fought on his side literally made no sense The, the 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 directions he gave were very erroneous and and because of that the british literally looked at him and was like yeah um they don't know what they're doing and he actually was very victorious at the battle of trafalgar so later on Uh, The French, with the help of Napoleon's generals, basically, um, during this time, pushed the Austrians out of Italy and pushed them back into Austria. And then the French basically pushed the Austrians all the way back to Vienna. And this happened all at the end of the year 1805. And this led to the Battle of Austerlitz. Now, while all this is happening, after Trafalgar, then Napoleon is now using his generals and they're all banding together going back into italy because austria really didn't couldn't take a hint i guess when they got beaten really bad the first time and literally he goes into italy and he pushes austrians all the way back to vienna remember last time when the austrians came and he did his campaign in italy um napoleon pushed them all the way back to 75 miles within vienna but this time it was different napoleon went All the way back to Vienna. Pushed them all the way back into Vienna. Led the amazing Battle of Austerlitz. And what was amazing here. Is that this battle was so powerful. The Austrians lost so badly. Napoleon basically came out on top of the world. He literally thought that he was invincible. He was at a point where he was literally thinking. No one can beat me. And I want to say that. It's at this point where I believe we will start to see a bit of cockiness. We will see a little bit of him start to get a to bite off more than I think what he could chew some of the main consequences here is that the Austrians had to surrender Venice uh, I shouldn't say the Austrians had to surrender Napoleon had to surrender Venice Stria and Dalmatia and oh I should say the Austrians had to surrender they did have to surrender and Naples remains under French control until about 1815. The Kingdom of Holland and the Grand Duchy of Berg also became satellite states that that the French actually ruled after this time period and the Holy Roman Empire goes down. Let's just understand how amazing this news is, okay it's not amazing, but the Holy Roman Empire has been around since literally 800 with Charlemagne, right? Since Charlemagne, one of the most famous Holy Roman Emperors, now they've been around for a thousand years. And all of a sudden, at the hand of one man, Napoleon, Franz II abdicates the title of Holy Roman Empire, and the Holy Roman Empire literally goes down. And it's literally something that literally shocked the world, because when the Holy Roman Empire went down, now you have all these states, Venice, Stria, Dalmatia, Holland, uh, the Grand Duchy of Berg, all this formed into the Confederation of the Rhine, That Napoleon now owns as satellite states. All for his use. And all for his desire or whatever he desires. And what's amazing is that literally the third coalition ends here. With Austria and Russia defeated. People going back home. Oh we lost again. But the fourth coalition forms again. Because they're like we need to take down Napoleon. (laughs) He's too power hungry. So we see now. The fourth coalition forms with Prussia now. Now, Austria is, is, Austria is like, I don't think I can do this anymore, for now. And Prussia enters the game. The UK, still part of the game, will be part of the game for a while. And Russia is now like, okay, I'm going to have a crack at this. And what is amazing here is that we do see the uh, joining in of Prussia, with the coalition, what is amazing is that Friedrich Wilhelm, or Frederick Wilhelm the I should, uh, the third, I should say, felt really threatened, and he decided, "I'm going to take on Napoleon. This man is too power hungry. We need to put him in his place." And thus, the fourth coalition assembles in October, or in an early 18, or mid 1814, I should say, and Napoleon defeats Prussia at the Battle of Jena, Aulstett, in october of 1806 they were so badly defeated prussia literally went back with limping and now napoleon is now at the point where he's like on top of the world all right he's got austria under his power he brought down the holy roman empire by himself basically he literally has now northern italy he has venice he has stria dalmatia he's got the grand duchy of berg He's got the Kingdom of Holland. He's got all this under his iron grip, all right? And because of this, now Napoleon is like, okay. Now, in order to deal with Britain, since they got majorly defeated at Trafalgar, Napoleon realizes, okay, I cannot go and take Britain by my navy. We, I just don't know how to run a navy like this, so how am I going to do this? Napoleon, in November 1806, institutes the continental system basically what this system was is that the idea was to embargo the uk basically no trade uh the 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 idea is that there will be no trade with uh britain Uh, basically all commerce british goods is banned from entering the continent even allies with napoleon were not allowed to trade even if you were neutral and basically the goal here was one idea and that was to strangle the british economy Now, this all happened in Berlin while Napoleon was there, and it was called the Berlin Decree. So, this uh, document I will also put in the show notes. Really interesting to go over. It's not very long. But it basically goes over some of the different, I should say, stipulations of what the allies of France at the time could and could not do. And literally, everyone that were Napoleon's allies, he literally went to enforce this, um, this embargo on Britain. And basically, that was to cripple their economy... And literally put them in their place and basically forced them to submission. But literally, what people don't realize is that France's economy also got hurt. And the continental system wasn't that effective in that sense. Because Britain was still a huge kingdom and it, it still ruled an enormous amount of um, land and different colonies around the world. And thus, I mean they could literally work off of their colonies that they did had did have, you know. And even though they were embargoed by uh from continental Europe, they still made a way to basically live through all this hardship and time. So Napoleon then marched on and he basically advanced his armies through Poland and advanced against the Russians and basically came to a stalemate uh E-Y-L-A-W, I do not know how to pronounce that. I think it's like E-E-Law? E-Law, I, like I really don't know how to pronounce Polish cities. Um, but um, yeah, Eylau. E-Law, I think it is. And why this is important is because this is probably the closest that Napoleon ever came to defeat in battle. And with this stalemate, you know, Napoleon is now at a point where he's like, okay, um, I'm hurting. I need to find another way to regroup. So he literally continues on and fights the battle, uh, fights a great victory at Friedland, and this forces another treaty. And this basically forces the treaties of Tilsit and Eastern Prussia with Tsar Alexander the First of Russia. So now he's fighting Russia and basically gets to a point where he nearly loses, and he literally has to do a really decisive victory in order for uh, the Tsar of Russia to really be like, okay, okay, I give up. All right, let's let's sign a peace treaty. Um, Now, the reason it's called the Treaties of Tilsit. I will also put them in the show notes. It's probably one of the most amazing treaties you'll read because basically Napoleon comes and is like, okay, I am going to basically divide Europe between... You and I. Alright. You know, Tsar, I think you and I are pretty close. So, I think, let's just, yeah, you know, uh, I, I respect you. you. You've done well. So, uh, let's divide Europe between us. And that's literally what happened. Napoleon literally actually respected Tsar Alexander I and literally is like, you know what? And, and let's, no need for more bloodshed. Let's just divide Europe between ourselves. I get everything from this side. You get everything from this side. One of the major wins that Prussia—I uh, should not say Prussia—Russia actually wins is the Ottoman Empire. Um, so basically, what Europe basically gets is that, or I shouldn't say Europe, but what really happens is that Europe starts to get puppet rulers. And basically, what happens is that Napoleon basically places rulers on the thrones of the German states and basically carves up Prussia. Now, with the carving up of, of, of Prussia, he basically places his brother in the on, on one of the German state thrones. He places other French officials and other close people. He knows on the German state's throne and basically carves up Prussia for his own use. Russia gets to do whatever they want with the Ottoman Empire, which is going through a major decline at this point. Napoleon gets all the territories west of the River Elbe. I will definitely put a map in the show notes to script in the show notes so that we can you can get a visual of what I'm talking about here. He puts his brother Jerome as king in one of the German states as I mentioned. He also declared Russia as one of their allies and basically is like, "Hey, okay. So I respect you. Let's be allies, but while we're allies, I want you to also join the Continental System because if we imbar- if we all embargo England, the whole continent embargoes England. We're like, they're going to literally come begging to us for submission. You know, they will want peace. Um, there were other things that happened out of the treaties of Tilsit as well. Their Duchy of Warsaw was formed. And we literally come to a point now where Europe in 1807 is now under the fists of two rulers, Alexander the Tsar of Russia and Emperor Napoleon on the west and Russia in the east. So, from this point on now, in the summer of 1807, we start to see, a- I should say, actions that contribute to the downfall of Napoleon, alright? we start Now, they may not look evident right away, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there were two major things that Napoleon will do that leads to his downfall. One, he will take uh, Spain, or he will attempt to take Spain. And this is where the next part of the episode now starts to get interesting. So, in summer 1807, Napoleon... Basically talks to Charles the Fourth, and is like, "Hey, look, Portugal is not following our embargo on England. They're not following the Continental System. So what are we going to do about it?" Well, I would like to invade Spain so I can send my troops in through Spain and then we go and attack Portugal. Charles the Fourth is like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, we're chilling. All's good." Napoleon's like, "Hmm." Wow, this man's dumb. <laughs> you really think I'm just going to invade Portugal? I mean, literally, that was probably a big mistake on the on the side of Charles IV, that he would just let French troops come and inhabit Spain so that he can, quote, go and force Portugal into submission for the continental system. Let's remember, Napoleon is at his peak. He literally just signed a... Tr- Multiple treaties where he carved up Europe into Eastern and Western Europe, the East being part of Russia and the West being part of France. Napoleon obviously is looking for more power. And that is one of my premises here. Napoleon, one of the downfalls that I believe contributed to Napoleon, and one of the actions that I believe contributed to the downfall of Napoleon is that he really had a desire for power. And this starts to show when he sends his troops to go And occupy Madrid in 1808. So now we're at a point where basically France occupies now Madrid in March of 1808. And Napoleon obviously is not just going there to make Portugal enforce this continental system that he has placed. Napoleon literally is like, you're so dumb, man. And literally goes and dethrones Charles IV of Spain. And one could argue that he was kind of getting greedy here because I think he bit off a little more than he could chew because when he dethroned Charles IV, basically, you now start to have uprisings in Madrid. And this is in May of 1808. Now everyone's like, oh my goodness, like, what are you doing dethroning our king? And this is actually where you start to see in modern history, the advent of successful uprisings or the advent of guerrilla warfare. Um, Successful uprisings have always been in history, but this is where we start to now see risings incorporated with guerrilla warfare. This is where it came from. And basically, Napoleon now appoints his other brother, Joseph, to be king of Spain. And while all this is happening, Napoleon then goes and, and tries to deal with his other state affairs of the time. One of them is that the um, uprising that was going on in Madrid was so strong, it basically forced the French to retreat. And Napoleon's like, okay, if you can't get anything done right, well, you got to do it yourself. And basically, Napoleon is like, fine, I'll do it. So Napoleon has to be drawn away from all the stuff that he's dealing with, with state affairs, and goes all the way back to Madrid in December 1808. Takes Madrid back and basically is like, oh, OK, they're back in my power. But here's one of the things we got to know. Even though Madrid is back in the power of Napoleon, Madrid, or I should not say Madrid, but Spain has will always become a thorn in the side of Napoleon. Yes, Napoleon has Spain, but there will always be a thorn in his side because they always will have to... They will always beat up French troops, always beat them up. Napoleon has to send more troops. That means more resources, more money, more food, and they always get beaten up and they never really take a full stronghold because guerrilla warfare was so new and it really actually was one of the first times Napoleon's troops were perturbed because it was very new. And as a result, it really just was a thorn in the side of France and it really wasted a lot of money and resources because he placed so many troops down there to just deal with Spain also in the, in the time while he's trying to deal with Portugal. So now, after Napoleon is dealing with all this stuff going on with Spain, in 1809, Napoleon formally now annexes the papal states. And as we know, Napoleon has tr- trouble with the Pope ever since literally he crowned himself. The Pope is like, hey, I want that land back that you gave me or that we agreed on. And Napoleon's like, nope, I'm going to crown myself king. Make me king. So he crowns himself king of northern Italy. Now Napoleon gets a bit too power hungry. He now is trying to work with Spain and Portugal, trying to have them all as his own. And then now he goes and he annexes the papal states now to the French Empire. Pope Pius VII excommunicates Napoleon from the church. And basically, Napoleon sends some men to go reconcile with the pope. And when the Pope literally refuses, the men, or I should say the French officers, abduct the Pope. Imagine that. Like, imagine a Pope just getting kidnapped. Now, here's the thing. Okay. Some French officers abduct the Pope. But one thing we must note is that it isn't clear that Napoleon ordered this. But here's what we do know. Napoleon knew of this abduction. And he did not order the release of Pius VII. When this happens, in mid-1809, Austria declares war, which starts the War of the Fifth Coalition. Napoleon at this point is still in Madrid, dealing with all this stuff regarding the uprising. So basically what Napoleon decides is that he's going to go now. He's going to leave Spain to go to Austria to go deal with the war that's going on. And like I said, the guerrilla warfare continues to be a a thorn in Napoleon's back. And it really drains France to a point to where all the things that Spain, all the things, all the engagement that Spain is really having, it starts to push. it, It starts to lead actually what is known as the push for the Spanish colonies wanting independence. And these are the latin american colonies that we see in latin america portugal was actually the same way the portuguese colonies started to fight or started to push for their independence because they're like hey if spain can't keep their you know own kingdom under control then we can just rule ourselves i mean they can't keep their own kingdom under control what makes us think that they can lead us here you know and that was literally what was going on so while all that is happening Now, the British and the Portuguese now push France out of Spain. All the French troops of Napoleon get pushed out of Spain with the help of the British General Arthur Wellesley, as we remember him from last episode and all his work in Egypt. And the Portuguese obviously revolt and are like, yeah, we're going to push him out. So they push Napoleon out of Spain. And meanwhile, while all this is happening... Napoleon is busy in Austria, fighting his heart out, <laughs> and Napoleon nearly loses a battle at Asper and Essling. Now, in history, this is probably literally the closest that he comes to losing a battle, but it ends in a draw. This happened in May of 1809, and, and basically, he comes to a point where he's like, Okay, I need to, I need to regroup again. Uh, I need to find a way to win. So, two months later, he fights another battle at Wagram. On July 6th of 1809, and France comes out victorious, and a new peace treaty is signed by Austria and France. And the following year, the Austrian Archduchess marries Napoleon after he divorces Josephine. And this is where we literally starts to see the this is where we literally start to see the catalyst for what goes into Napoleon's downfall, because now Napoleon's at a point where he now has placed. Or he's now placed a treaty where he now marries in, into the Austrian family, uh, the Habsburg Empire. And, and it looks like everything seems to be working in order. Uh, it probably doesn't. And I'm going to tell you right now, it really doesn't. <laughs> but uh, it seems like everything's kind of stable there. He creates peace there. And now France will now move forward, and lead into what is the French invasion of Russia of 1812. So this is really one of the second parts that lead to the, that really catalyzes fall. First, it was Madrid. As we discussed, one of the major mistakes that Napoleon made with Madrid is that he had to put all his resources, men, troops, food, keep them there. And they were a constant thorn because guerrilla warfare was really just Eating at them. And it got to a point where literally the British and the Portuguese start to push him out of of Spain. And literally, everyone's like, okay, this is like... Napoleon's like, okay, this is not going to work. Okay. So, while all that is happening, meanwhile, Russia starts to relax the continental system. And now this is 1811. Russia starts to relax the continental system... And, you know, Russia and Napoleon are empires, you know, or our best or empire friends, I should say, empire besties or something like that. Napoleon and Russia are doing pretty good. Remember, Russia owns the Ottoman Empire. They get to do whatever they want. They own Eastern Europe, basically. It's all under them. And Russia starts to relax this continental system, this embargo that was on the UK or on the United Kingdom. And Napoleon now starts to get mad. He's like... What do you mean, sir? You can't just relax. If you if you start trading with England, then the whole embargo won't work because if you start trading, then that means England gets business somehow and like everything else is ruined. So Napoleon's like, "Okay, this needs to stop." So Napoleon decides, "Okay, I think I'm going to I'm just going to have to do something about this." But he's like, "But he's my ally." But in 1812, russia starts to make plans to invade poland and napoleon's like okay you're trying to invade poland you took one step too far sir and here napoleon decides to invade russia in april of 1812 now this is one of the most uh deep things that i've ever seen because it ended in catastrophic failure and it got to such a point where as we're going to see a little later on because of what was going on in Madrid, or in Madrid, Napoleon probably lost so many resources that it really ended, it really caused his demise much quicker than was necessary. He pro- if he didn't get so greedy, he probably wouldn't have been in the situation that he was in. And now Napoleon now takes 450,000 men and basically starts marching them towards Moscow. Now, um, one of the charts that I'm going to put in the show notes happens to be the Joseph Menard chart. Now, this chart basically is cataloging all, or I should say, every city that Napoleon went from the time that he had 450,000 men to the time he reaches Russia to the time he goes back. The decline in all the men that he had in this chart—it's quite a fascinating chart. You should definitely take a look at it. I will definitely put it in. Um, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. Definitely something to see, to study, to check out. You will understand really how bad, or you will understand the gravity of the situation that Napoleon had with his failures here in the invasion of Russia. He starts marching towards Moscow, and he starts losing men. One because Every supply line that Napoleon had to leave men to guard, he lost men. And while he's marching to Russia, he starts, you know, having skirmishes here and there. And, and that's all happening. But, you know, these skirmishes that are happening didn't really take very many men. But he had to leave many, a bunch of men to guard supply lines and such. And that led to a lot of problems. Alright, so while all this is happening, he now eventually marches and loses men to skirmishes here and there. He finally makes it to Russia and he fights the Battle of Borodino, which is probably one of the deadliest battles in history up to this point. In fact, by the time he gets to the Battle at Borodino, Napoleon only has 135,000 men. What's amazing about this is that he started this campaign in April of 1812. He came with this idea that, okay, it's April, I'm going to attack during spring. I'll be light on my feet, I'm going to use my same tactics, nothing will be a problem. And as we see, by the time he gets to the Battle of Borodino, there were 35,000 French casualties. And there were 44,000 Russian casualties, which basically meant it was a win for Napoleon, that's for sure. But it was so bloody, so deadly, sometimes you even wonder who really won. Napoleon then is like, okay, we need to take Moscow. So he marches all the way into Moscow and basically is like, oh, it's OK. We get to Moscow. We'll refuel up. We'll head back home. And of course, Napoleon, with his tactics of being light on his feet, what Napoleon would do is that he would literally just take food from the harvest or from the fields as they're harvesting. But uh, what happened is that since this was now September of 1812, when the Battle of Borodino happens, uh, Russia starts to perform what is called scorched earth tactics. And basically, they burnt the ground as they were retreating. So basically, they burnt all the food that Napoleon could have potentially had. And Napoleon didn't calculate this. And this was a major sting. Because as we remember, Napoleon is now down men. He's down to 100,000 men. He's trying to feed them. They have no food. And they're going through struggles at such a point where it's like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And to make it worse, he now gets to Moscow, and basically, Moscow's deserted. And in fact, not only is Moscow deserted, Moscow has no food, and Moscow is burning. That's right. One of the last, um, I should say, one of the last uh, commands that the Russian general who was leading under the direction of Alexander the First, Tsar Alexander the I was to burn moscow so literally he gets to moscow moscow is now burning and there's no food napoleon's like oh my goodness i blundered well the only thing i can do is turn back so napoleon decides i'm going to turn around we're going to go all the way back where we came and on the retreat that they had they got attacked by peasants and, and had skirmishes again and, and all these things that really didn't end very well. But let's remember, they only had about 100,000 troops left. And people are dying left and right. Pe- uh, uh, troops deserted because they were starving to death. It was such a tough time. And by the time they got to the Berezina River, which is actually in the Joseph Minor tr- chart that I will put in the, um, in the show notes. Once they get to the Berezina River, the men got decimated. And by the end of 1812, after the crossing of the Berezina River, there were only 10,000 troops that were left under the command of Napoleon. That's right, 10,000 troops. Basically, they were either captured, deserted, or they died. And and, and that's what happened to most of the troops. In fact, 300,000 French troops died. 200,000 Russian troops died. There were also Russian civilian casualties. And basically from this whole invasion, there were about a million casualties. Over 200,000 horses are dead. And Napoleon comes back weakened, destroyed, struggling. It is in such a point where Napoleon shows up only 10,000 troops back. He's like, what am I going to do? And now Napoleon's back, right? All weakened. 10,000 troops he's hardly making it remember he still has troops that are on the run from madrid uh, things are just catastrophic for napoleon right now and napoleon's now weakened and when this happens the sixth coalition starts in may 1813 and now we see that basically everyone is like oh this is our chance he's weak great britain's back in the game is one of the major players russia comes back prussia comes back He's like, oh, you're weak, man. I want a piece of the action. This is where we now see all these countries start to come in and are like, yes, let's do this. We're going to take you down. You are weak. We're going to take you down now. And basically, Napoleon starts, you know, he he gets back to Paris with about 10,000 troops. He basically builds up his numbers to about 30,000 troops. He eventually gets all the way up to 400,000 troops. But it wasn't the same caliber as... The troops that he brought to the Russian invasion, the troops that he built up for the Sixth Coalition were probably, you know, just soldiers that had very little experience. Unlike the men that really fought with him and stuck by him side by side that went into the invasion of Russia. But they all deserted, died and, or, or starved or, or got captured. So, so things didn't work out very well on that front. So Napoleon now has 400,000 troops that may not be as experienced. And now Napoleon really has very few options. So, he has to take these 400,000 troops and basically go to battle against 1 million troops on the opposing side. That's right. 1 million troops. It's insane. So, Napoleon, being Napoleon, he basically wins a couple battles at Lutzen, Bautzen, and Dresden. And these battles were amazing because he's going against a million combined troops. And literally... He's going against Great Britain, Prussia, and Russia. And Napoleon's by himself. But he outsmarts, outwits, he's too fast. He's a battle genius. And obviously, there was an element of luck here that led to Napoleon winning most of these battles. In fact, it got to a point where okay, other uh, countries were like, Okay, you know what? It's our turn to join the action. So the Trackenberg plan were, was placed by the Sixth Coalition... And it was put in motion. And basically, the Trackenberg plan was the idea that we're not going to attack Napoleon directly. What we're going to do is attack his generals. Napoleon's too smart. He's too strong. All right. We can't we can't beat him on our own. But if we go for his generals that may not have as much experience, not as much genius as Napoleon, we can definitely get him. And they put the Trachtenberg plan into motion and essentially... Austria joins the coalition, Sweden, Spain, and Portugal. So now it's a whole party, all right? Now we've got Great Britain, Russia, Prussia, Austria, Sweden, Spain, Portugal, all seven countries. They now are like, we're going to take you down. You are weak. We are now going to take you down. And basically, we see what is Napoleon's first major defeat. And this is at Leipzig. And when this happens, this forces Napoleon to retreat. And while all this is happening, right? While all this is happening with Napoleon, Arthur Wellesley is pushing and defeating all the French in the Pyrenees. Let us remember, Wellesley is pushing all of the French troops out of Spain. He has pushed them so far back into Italy. I'm sorry, not into Italy. He's pushed them so far back up the peninsula. That he's now reaching the french pyrenees and he's like we're going to push you all in we're going to take you down and now napoleon is busy in leipzig getting defeated so now everything is just crashing in and crumbling down for napoleon in fact in february of 1814 there was a six day campaign that they had and by march the whole coalition enters paris They enter Paris and in April of 1814, the generals under Napoleon basically say, we're not going to do this anymore. We give up. And Napoleon is like, I'm not going to. What? No, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. And the generals are like, have fun fighting without generals. And Napoleon's like, oh, my goodness, I guess you guys are serious, huh? So basically, they come to a point where they're like, "Okay, we're going to have to give up here. So Napoleon is forced to abdicate and they basically the rules of his abdication his descendants can never take the throne and with that came the treaty of Fontainebleau, which in english is the treaty of blue fountain really these treaty names are not very original this treaty will also be put in the show notes as well if you want to take a read really good material to uh, look at as well and obviously, okay, so Napoleon now cannot have any of his children or any of his uh, descendants take uh, the throne anymore. And with that, Napoleon gets uh, exiled to the island of Elba. So he, he's allowed to keep the title of emperor, actually. He's allowed to rule the island of Elba. He, You know, back then, I mean, there were rules when people fought. And I mean, I guess they still had a, a level of respect. You know, they were like, hey, you lose? No worries, you can go be king of, you know, Timbuktu. <laughs> and basically, that's what they did. And Napoleon, he's now on the island of Elba. And when this happens, the royalist faction rises up. And Louis Eighteenth is restored to the throne of France. Now, why didn't Louis Seventeenth get restored to the uh, throne of France? I'll tell you why. Louis Seventeenth died in 1795 during the French reign of terror. He was actually thrown in prison when the Jacobins were busy doing what they were doing, killing everyone at the suspicion they wanted to kill everyone that was associated with the monarchy. And Louis XVII was placed in prison and actually died a sad death at the age of ten. Louis the Eighteenth is the younger brother of Louis XVI. and thus, since he's uh, a legitimate ruler from the House of Bourbon, he liter- or a legitimate heir from the House of Bourbon. He's like, okay, well, uh, thank you for everything. I'm gonna take the throne back. So Louis the 18th, with the help of the royalists, takes back the throne of France, the throne of France, and the French monarchy is restored once again. It's no longer an emperor dictatorship. I guess under Napoleon, it is now a constitutional monarchy or absolute monarchy. What I mean. It was really very constitutional because the Jacobins really had a lot of Republican forces and all these things. But the point is, Louis XVIII gets restored to the throne of France. Napoleon has to leave. He starts ruling the island of Elba. And when all this happens, the monarchy is now restored. The French Empire is shrunken back to the original boundaries. Italy gets their territories back. Austria gets back to its business. Prussia gets back to its business. Russia gets back to its business. And they weren't treating the Napoleonic veterans very well in France. You know, they're like, how could you fight with Napoleon being the person you are, etc., etc. And, 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 you know, they weren't treating him well. But while Napoleon was busy on Elba, he didn't last there very long. I believe he stayed on the island of Elba for about nine months. Napoleon sat on the island of Elba, and he's like, I'm out of here. So he takes a boat, escapes from Elba, goes to the southern portion of France. Now, this is 1815, all right? He goes to the southern portion of France. And literally, when Louis 18th and all his um, people, the royalists, heard about Napoleon reaching the southern part of France, basically, Louis 18th sends troops to go engage with him. And by the time Napoleon gets to the southern tip of France, the troops eventually engage with him at the border of France there. And he meets with them. And one of, the, one of my most favorite quotes and one of the most fascinating things that Napoleon has ever... if Let me tell you something. If you never believed in Napoleon in being the leader that he was, this is the one time where you should believe what Napoleon did. Basically, what the French troops did is that they went and said, or not the French troops, Napoleon, he went and said, and I quote, Soldiers of the Fifth, you recognize me. If any man would shoot his emperor, he may do so now. He literally walks up to the French troops and goes, Yes, I know you were sent by Louis XVIII to come and kill me. Shoot your emperor. And literally after a brief silence, the soldiers shouted in unison, Vive l'Empereur! Vive l'Empereur! In English, this translates to, Long live the Emperor! Long live the Emperor! And basically, he grabs all these troops that were coming to take him out, and he takes control of that whole army, and they march to Paris. Now, if there was ever such influence... On a group of men that respected him that much. It was those men that came and literally with a mission to come and take Napoleon out. They literally saw Napoleon and said, I cannot shoot my emperor. So he decides, I'm going back to Paris. Let's go take Paris. He takes them all and the army says, let's do it. And they go back to Paris. He marches into Paris in March of 1815. And basically, literally, they go through now what is called the 100 days. Uh, basically, this is where Napoleon takes rulership for 100 days. And he basically fights a losing battle against the 7th Coalition. Really, it's a losing battle because literally everyone's against him. All seven countries, plus other players. It just got really bad. And basically, he lost at the Battle of Waterloo. It was an extremely bloody battle, fought for hours and hours, and Napoleon loses to none other than our best friend, Arthur Wellesley. And when Napoleon loses, the French have to retreat all the way back to Paris, and Napoleon surrenders himself to the British, and he is exiled to St. Helena. He then dies six years later. It is amazing, because Napoleon, he was really such a strong man. Such a knowledgeable man, he knew what he was doing, and what is amazing is that Napoleon he literally had such influence that they even the men that were even sent to capture him went with him because they believed in him. And even though they lost, Napoleon still lives in history as one of the greatest French military no, not one of the greatest French military generals, I mean, probably one of the French greatest french military generals but one of the greatest military generals that this world has ever seen it's amazing to see napoleon dies six years later in 1821 his health even when he went back to saint helena wasn't very good he he was believed to have died of stomach cancer others say he died of some asbestos poisoning i believe or mercury poisoning i don't remember which one it is i I believe it was um i believe it was actually mercury poisoning Um, There are so many different speculations. Most um, documents lead to uh, uh, stomach cancer. And basically the point is, is with Napoleon's death, now we see Europe taking another turn. And what is amazing about this is the question that we've been always thinking about this whole month is, what makes a citizen of that country a citizen? And one thing I can comment on this question is that What makes a citizen a citizen is their ideals and beliefs. It's their belief system that they have because they can create a system of belief. And if they can get everyone to believe in them, they're doing this not for themselves, but for the people. And that's what makes him a citizen of France. Yes, he was born speaking Italian on the island of Corsica and whatnot. He hated the French until he reached a certain age. He literally said as a kid that I'm going to take, I'm going to get rid of the French if it's the last thing I do, basically. But the thing is, is that he had such influence that he literally used that to basically place as a premise away. For him to create a platform to basically become a dictator over all of Europe. And this is what led to the demise of Napoleon. Now, that is basically it. You know, this has been a fun journey. A fun couple weeks here. Looking deeply into Napoleon. If there are any uh, different ideas or any um, things that you would like to discuss regarding Napoleon, it's amazing. Um, You can just literally comment on youtube or comment on apple podcasts uh we um have both of our we have everything up if you would like to comment and just let me know uh what you think of these episodes if there's any episodes you would like to hear or or different content you would like to hear also comment below and we'll be back uh in two weeks with our next episode and our new theme of the month thanks once again i'm michael musangu and remember if you don't know your history You will not know your future. Until next time.